and welcome to On Opinion, the Palia podcast. I'm Turi Bunti. We live in opinionated times. Culture wars, identity politics, polarization. Everyone has an opinion. But do we know where our opinions come from? Do we know why we think what we think? In each episode, I'll talk to experts across all disciplines to help us understand the nature of opinion, how we form ideas, why we argue, and what that means for society. Hello, I'm Emma Penny, producer of On Opinion, which is now part of the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts that examines what's broken in our democracy and how we can work together to fix it. I'd like to share with you another podcast within the network, Democracy Matters, brought to you by Abe Goldberg and Kara Ongweili of the James Madison Centre for Civic Engagement. Search Democracy Matters in your podcast app and subscribe. Today we're immensely pleased to be talking to Lasana Harris. Lasana is Professor in Social Cognition at UCL, um, where his research uses a social neuroscience approach to explore the neural correlates of person perception. We're going to go into that a little bit more detail now, and he can explain what that means. He's also the author of Invisible Mind, which takes an interdisciplinary approach to how the brain enables dehumanization. So we at Palia are interested in how humans form opinions, but also, and critically, how we engage with others. Today, we're going to be looking at what social neuroscience can tell us about the very worst of all forms of interaction, dehumanization. Lasana, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Can I kick off with a few, just to sort of lay the groundwork here and ask you what social neuroscience is? It's the study of human behavior through the lens of the brain. And so essentially what we're doing is taking social behavior questions, questions you might find in social psychology or behavioral economics, and we're asking what are the underlying brain mechanisms that enable these behaviors, psychological functions. Um, and so social neuroscientists essentially are people who are both concerned about the brain and concerned about social behavior. Can I ask you to jump straight into the opposite of your focus, which is dehumanization. So can we look at humanization as a place to start? What is theory of mind? When does it develop? Yeah, I think it's the most fascinating thing personally, in my opinion. And it's the reason why I study what I do study. If you think about it, we've never seen another mind. We can only infer its existence based on the behaviors that we witness. And so humanization is this process of attributing mental characteristics to something, anything. So there's a lot of research that I do that looks at how we humanize things that aren't human, right? How do we attribute minds to robots, to algorithms and AI, um, to animals, to buildings, entities, governments, religions, deities, right? Humans have this knack for seeing minds everywhere. And, and I think one of the reasons we do this is because Inferring a mind, imagining that something has a mind allows us to explain and predict the behavior of that entity. And so things that usually attract a humanized gaze are things that we call agents. 
they seem to originate their own behavior. So if, if I'm walking outside and I notice a boulder rolling down a hill, I expect the behavior of that boulder to be consistent with the physical laws of nature, right? Boulders roll down hills. Gravity explains why it's doing that. If the boulder stopped rolling down the hill, so short circuits what gravity says it should do, changes direction without anybody changing it for it and suddenly starts rolling after me. I now see that boulder as something that has a mind because it has what we call agency, right? right? It was able to behave in ways that aren't explained by the physical laws of nature. And when things start disobeying nature's physical laws, we think of them as intentional agents, right? And the humanization process begins. Now, the remarkable thing, and I think the boulder analogy makes this really clear, is that there's nothing really there. What we're doing is using our past experiences. We're using information we have about people, or in this case, boulders and their typical behavior. We're using information about the situation we're in, the context that we're in, right? And that's why you sometimes see researchers call it theory of mind. Because what we're doing is building a theory about what somebody might be thinking, right? In the same way that scientists do when we try to discover something about the world. And so for this reason, we're all sort of considered naive scientists, right? We're experts at human behavior. We're constantly building theories that we're testing about what's on somebody's mind. What is somebody thinking? What are they feeling? And so it's quite a remarkable process. Um, and so by studying humanization, this process of theory of mind, we get a chance to understand meaningful social behaviors because it's used to predict and explain what people are doing. When does theory of mind develop neurologically in the, in, in, in the human? When do, when do we start being able to infer agency in others? Yeah, so if you look at um, infants, um, infants start dissociating humans from other things out there in the world fairly early on at about let's say uh, 15 weeks um, and by about uh, a few months old they can distinguish types of humans so they can tell their mother separate from other human beings so very early on humans capture our attention so babies will look longer at human faces than any other types of stimuli so we're born prepared to learn about other minds because that's crucial of course to our existence within a highly social species as humans are. Um, so the tools are there from very early on but the kinds of sophisticated skills that we see in adults gradually develop over the first few months and years of life. So for instance in some of the work we've done we've shown that um, 18th month olds have a lot of, of skills, social cognitive skills, mainly because they're starting to do what's called a vocabulary spurt. And a lot of, of mental state inferences, thinking about people's minds depends on language. So you need that tool to help you. And so having the ability now to learn words and generate words helps them get a little bit more skills. Um, but even before that, for instance, at 10 months old, infants are learning causal relationships, which is going to be necessary for them to be able to generate and test theories later on. So we have what I call rudimentary skills from very early on in life. And then as we develop, as we get more experiences, as we get more cognitive tools, we really bring on this 
theory of mind, social cognitive processes. So I would say by the age of, and there's tons of debate here, <laughs> but certainly by the age of 18 months to two years old, we're seeing sophisticated social cognitive skills. Things like deception, detection, they come much later, five years, for instance. But when does it come online is sort of a sliding scale. Um, can I ask you what the social value of this humanization is? Sure. So it's fundamental to communication, first of all. So for us to have a conversation, I need to have an idea of what it is you're asking me. Because the word alone is often insufficient for me to infer meaning because words are delivered in context. And I need to know what the goals are, what your desires are, why it is we're having this conversation. So it really facilitates social communication. So it enables us to be this hyper-social species. Now, can species survive without language? Certainly, but in most social species, there's some signaling that happens between the members of the group, essentially, so that they can perform social functions. The other thing is that it makes your goals salient to me so that if we're engaged in joint actions or joint tasks, we can better perform those tasks. So if I know what you're supposed to be doing in a joint task and I'm tracking that while I'm tracking what I'm supposed to be doing, it really facilitates our ability to get the task done. The other real advantage it have is that it facilitates what's called impression management or reputation management. It allows us to be able to track our position within social hierarchies. So if we're in a hyper-social species like humans are, we need to know where we sit within social groups. And we can do that by engaging a sort of metacognitive component of social cognition where we wonder what other people are thinking of us. So when I yell at my computer, it doesn't yell back, right? And I'm not worried about what the computer thinks of me for yelling at it. But if I yell at another person, I'm going to worry how they now view me, given that I've yelled at them. So we're constantly monitoring the impressions other people have of us. Social cognition facilitates that as well. That's fascinating. So it's both it's both sort of proactive for the group and also helps the individualists ascertain where they are inside it. Yeah, exactly. And the last part is it makes morality relevant. And so. Morality is all about suffering and harm and intentionality, right? Bad minds, essentially. And so morality just lives in that social cognitive domain. So the moral rules that we use to govern how we live in large groups are facilitated by these social cognitive processes as well. So like you said, it makes the groups function and go, but it also helps us as individuals within those groups. And just to look at this question of morality again, the argument here is that it is the group's understanding of others' state of mind, theory of mind, which allows them to attribute motives and therefore impute morality or immorality to those actions. Exactly. If I see somebody do something, do something negative. So let's say I see somebody engage in a bad behavior. It matters whether that behavior happened accidentally or intentionally. And the intentional piece matters because it says something about that person's mind. And remember, the mind is the explanation for their behavior. So if you've done something bad because of your bad mind, that means going forward in the future, I can predict you might do something bad again. So it makes the interaction I have with you, it gives me ground rules for governing that interaction. Right? It discourages me from trying to form social relationships with you unless, of course, 
I want to do things where someone with a bad intentions is going to be useful. Um, but if I see you perform that behavior and it's accidental, right? Um, then you may not be counted on in the future to do bad things because you only engage in that behavior through no cause of your own, right? And again, the mind there is what becomes relevant. So being able to attribute intentionality, responsibility, that's really a key component of morality. And so again, that's all about social cognition. Asana, thank you. So we've covered the basics of what humanization is, how it works, and why it's so useful to us. Now let's do the opposite. What is dehumanization? So dehumanization for us is simply short-circuiting humanization. So we've kept it fairly simple in its definition. Now this isn't, like I say, your granddaddy's definition of dehumanization. Because for us, dehumanization isn't something that's just happening in cases of human atrocities. So we think of dehumanization much more as an everyday psychological phenomena. And that's really because we think that being able to regulate whether you engage social cognition or not is functional. There are going to be benefits in your day-to-day -day living if you have the ability to not get in the head of every single person you encounter. Um, and so dehumanization has become a bit of a troublesome term for us over the years. These days we're calling it flexible social cognition because lots of people have the belief, right, that dehumanization is bad. But in psychology, we study processes, right? Not because they're valence, but because they're psychological processes. And every psychological process can be used for good or bad. So what's the good case for dehumanization? Well, we're doing lots of work these days looking at healthcare professionals. And what we're discovering is that if a healthcare professional is able to regulate their social cognition, that is, they're not getting inside of the head of every single patient and empathizing with them and displaying compassion in that way. They're actually guarded against burnout in their profession, right? Because remember, they're constantly coming into people who contact with people who are suffering. And it also leads to them actually better treating the person, right? Viewing the person as a broken machine allows them to do a better job of sticking them with a needle or performing surgery. And that's because thinking about somebody's mind requires lots of, of cognitive processing, as we put it. It requires a lot of heavy lifting by the brain. And those resources could instead be used for sort of helping the person, fixing the person, you know, doing the surgery. You're instead using them to think about what this person is thinking and ruminate about their suffering and wonder about all of their family members and friends who are worried and concerned. So it actually leads to benefits to dehumanize. Um, and that's not only true in the health profession. Um, that happens in all of our lives in, in lots of different circumstances. So here's one example. Um, imagine that you had a friend who was a realtor. They're your really wonderful friend, but you know they're a terrible realtor. So you one day decide you're selling your house. Do you go to your friend to sell your house? You know that going to your friend is probably going to mean you don't get as much money for your house. So if you're driven by profit, it makes sense to go elsewhere. In the moment where you have to make that decision, if you don't think about your friend's mind, right, if you regulate that social cognition, it's going to be easier to make the financially driven decision, right? Now, you can always switch it back on later and worry about repairing your relationship when they find out. 
but it's really going to guide you to make a better financial decision in that context. So we've done lots of research showing that people, again, make better financial decisions in some circumstances if they regulate disability. So there are cases where regulating the ability is really useful and functional. Um, and so that allows us to say, well, dehumanization is more of an everyday phenomenon than you would have thought. So this, this key piece of the sliding scale of dehumanization is critical because as you say, to most of us, dehumanization is what leads to the massacres in Rwanda, Srebrenica, the Holocaust, the history of slavery and racism, misogyny, etc. There is that we, we immediately jump to the atrocity, but in fact, we are all engaged in sort of a graded process of dehumanization kind of all the time because it's useful, right? Exactly. And there's no evidence that dehumanization is engaged in those human atrocities. So what we have is a nice relationship. There's a co-occurrence. So we see dehumanizing propaganda when we see these atrocities. And so people say in the legal context, the human rights context, for instance, dehumanization is the fuel of the fire. Well, we don't actually think that's true. We've done some empirical research asking this question. And what we've discovered is that Emotions like anger and fear are much more energizing when it comes to committing these human atrocities. What dehumanization does, we think, is it allows you to justify why the behavior has occurred so that you keep it going. So we think dehumanization is serving a different function in those cases. It's doing what we call post hoc justification. So the victims didn't really have minds like us. That's the dehumanization. Therefore, they didn't suffer that badly. Therefore, what we did really wasn't that bad in the first place. So it gives you this justificatory mechanism. But we don't think it's motivating. We don't think dehumanization is what gets you to pick up a machete and go after your neighbor, right? We think fear and historical circumstances and anger and revenge, right, for past atrocities those things are more meaningful. And again, these human atrocities are complex, right? There's not a single motivating factor. So we don't think dehumanization is playing that role for the simple reason that if I, I have an enemy who I want to suffer, I need to switch on social cognition to make sure that they are suffering, right? <laughs> so there's some research that, that demonstrates, right, that you get more dehumanization in what's called instrumental harm. So I'm buying cheap clothing from sweatshop workers. I dehumanize the sweatshop workers because I don't want to feel bad about my clothing. But if I actively want to harm you, right, I need to know I'm making you suffer. So in the more sort of moral harm it's called, you don't find a lot of dehumanization coming along. So it's really one of those cases where as human beings, we have these folk theories about psychologically, this is how it functions. But if we could do some empirical work, we see that it isn't quite that way. And so it's near impossible to do research on genocide, right? The studies that have led us to these conclusions are all hypotheticals. Um, but nonetheless, it does present an interesting way of viewing dehumanization. That's very different from the traditional view. So we think of dehumanization as a justification for behaviors which are inspired by other feelings, rage, fear, but they, one looks at the history of oppression, we see examples of dehumanization all the way through. Descriptions of slaves, for example, in the 17th and 18th century 
constantly talk about sort of the diminished humanness of, of, of these people being trafficked. The Germans talked literally about the idea of an untermensch, an underhuman, a not quite human Jew. Um, so all the way through, purely from a sort of literary critical perspective, you've got um, descriptions of dehumanization at work all the way through. So there's, there's clearly a link here. Maybe it's simply that those atrocities are too difficult to commit for the human mind unless the victim of those atrocities has been dehumanized. Exactly. And, and a lot of what you're describing are the, the propaganda functions as well. So a lot of these descriptions are propaganda for a reason, right? It justifies the practice. So if I'm a British person in the 18th century and I want to invest my money and banks were recently created because of the slave trade, the place I'm investing is in slaves, right? So I'm buying into being a slave owner. Now that may sound heinous as a place to put my money, but if I have dehumanizing propaganda that justifies the treatment of those people, I feel more comfortable making that investment. And so I become a absentee slave owner while living in London. And so it's not that I'm necessarily a morally bad person, right? Because I didn't even think about the suffering of those people in the West Indies, right? What I'm doing instead is thinking about the financial investment, which we know is going to be dehumanizing. As I mentioned before, once we get in a financial context, mines are irrelevant for profit. But secondly, the dehumanization has short-circuited any empathy or compassion I might have for those people, making it seem like not a morally bad thing that I'm doing. So I think that approach to dehumanization allows you to see how these atrocities function because the atrocities starting is one thing we have to solve, but then the atrocities usually sustain themselves, right? Slavery existed for hundreds of years. And answering the sustaining question is not the same, I think, of answering the initiation question. Why did this thing get started? Um, so I think dehumanization does have a function in human atrocities. It's not the causal mechanism, that's what I think. And in legal canon, the way human rights law is structured, it's viewed as a causal mechanism. So we struggle to get convictions for perpetrators of human atrocities because we're looking for causal evidence. But nobody in a death squad says, that guy dehumanized this group and therefore I decided to go kill them. <laughs> no, right. right? Yeah. There are many other factors that led to you being in a death squad and murdering people. Um, but dehumanization helps in the court of public opinion. So let's go back to the kind of counterintuitive uh, conclusion that you start with, which is that in fact dehumanization is not a cause, it's potentially a correlate or a, or a justification. And let's go back again and, and reframe dehumanization in the term that you use, which is flexible social cognition, the fact that we can withhold or grant more humanness to the people that we're interacting with. We are either more or less empathetic towards them. Can we talk to some of the examples that you've seen where that dehumanization truly is damaging? Yeah, I think there are lots of really good everyday examples today of dehumanization. The first one, which we haven't mentioned at all, is is sexual objectification, right? How we view um, women's primarily bodies, right? As commodities and the whole sort of issue surrounding sexual harassment and permissibility and the conversations we're still having about safeguarding women. Um, dehumanization is rampant there, right? And so it's the same psychological mechanism. 
You're not thinking about the woman's mind when you're checking her out, right? Um, so there's work to be done there surrounding advertising and how women are portrayed. Um, that has to do with reinforcing a dehumanized mindset towards their bodies. Um, and it's not just limited to women's bodies. It's much more complicated than that, but that's the biggest problem to start with. Um, I would say charity work in general, people who are suffering, they're constantly around us in, in metropolitan places like London, right? You see homeless people every day. It's really hard to expend that much empathy constantly to these people because of the cognitive demand. And also people are making the prediction that they don't have the, the financial resources to really help these people as well. And so if I feel like I can't help, why do I want to feel bad for not helping? Might as well shut off their mind, go about my day. Um, and so you get a lot of this turning a blind eye behavior to human suffering in general. You think about the pandemic in places now like India that are really devastated by it. It's better to think of 350,000 a day with COVID as a statistic rather than 350,000 suffering people. So there's lots of, of sort of what I call proactive emotion regulation that we use dehumanization for in the everyday context as well. And that's just two examples. And like you said, there are many, many more cases where I think this process is being flexibly engaged or disengaged. I think the commoditization of labor, absolutely. I think when people get into social roles, it really promotes social cognition or not, right? Think about someone who's an HR manager who had to make tough decisions because of the pandemic in terms of their staff numbers and who gets to keep their job and who doesn't and who goes on furlough and who doesn't. Again, if you thought about the suffering of those people, it makes your job very difficult. It makes it really hard to look at yourself in the mirror. If you think about the company surviving through the pandemic, so there'll be jobs in the future, right? Then dehumanizing the employees today is really helpful. Um, and you can scale that up to more macro uh, uh, labor issues as well. So there are many arenas, I think, in modern society where dehumanization is playing a role. Healthcare, who gets access to healthcare, right? Who gets um, what types of treatments prescribed to them? There's research in the American context showing that African-American women are usually given less pain medication, for instance, during um, different types of procedures. Again, because you're not thinking about their minds, you're viewing them as superhuman in a sort of a way. They have the ability to greatly bear pain consistent with stereotypes associated with their group. Um, and then all of the, the cheap labor for things like um, gig industry workers all the way through to right, clothing manufacturers. And so there's, there's tons of places where this stuff is relevant, I think. But we haven't looked at it through that lens because we've saved dehumanization for genocide, um, torture. And so we, we haven't really understood these processes psychologically. So I just want to dig in a little bit into some of these ones. So it sounds as if um, this dehumanization of the other gender or of other races, I wonder whether elements of that comes in which you talk to about not seeing, not being, not feeling able to understand them and therefore finding it much easier to dehumanize. So all these jokes that men have told since forever about who can understand a woman's mind, you can never understand the opposite gender, that it, it, may, it may be grounded in a sense of confusion but actually reifying it, stabilizing it as an idea, 
allows for this dehumanization. What's the relationship in that instance to, to your mind? Is it one which starts with confusion and then leads to dehumanization or is it something else? That's an interesting idea. I think we've thought about the, the lack of understanding in the case of people who suffer with psychological illnesses. So all psychological illnesses are in view the same and some are very stigmatizing and dehumanizing. And they tend to be the ones like you just described where it's harder to figure out someone's mind. So a schizophrenic is a much more dehumanized target than let's say someone who suffers with um, depression, for instance. Um, so the lack of understanding may apply to the gender case. What the researchers in gender have looked at is what they call um, uh, benevolent sexism is the best predictor. So that's a, a paternalistic view of women. So believing that women should be put in a pedestal and protected and their places in the home and they're weaker than men. Having that type of belief or attitudes towards women predicts more likely sexually objectifying them. So I think the argument has been that it's more about women serving a specific function, sex being part of that function, and they need to stick to that particular function. And in that sense, it's a view of women as not being fully human in quite the same way, right? Because this idea of human is an abstract representation of whatever the dominant symbol or prototype is within a society. And that's usually a white middle age wealthy to middle-class male, right, in Western societies. So anything that's not that ideal is subject to being dehumanized in some way because they're limited in what people think they're capable of doing. And I think it's really that limitation and capability that may be what's driving the gender dehumanization, the objectification, to be quite honest. Lasana, can I ask you to jump into what the neuroscience here looks at when you're talking about flexible social cognition. Can you walk us through perhaps the experiment that you did with Princeton students, just to help us understand what you can see through fMRI scans and many other things besides in this process of social cognition. So again, if we say social psychology helps us understand the ways that humans interact together and comes up with evolutionary reasons or psychological reasons for the ways at which we treat each other the way that we do but what neuroscience does and social neuroscience particularly does is looks at what is happening in the brain fMRI is a wonderful thing to us because it gave us a glimpse inside the black box of cognition so if somebody's doing something again you can see mental processes right you can only infer them from behavior so you look at the history of psycho of psychology after we left freud behind we went to behaviorism, right? Where all we did is focused on behavior because we couldn't see inside the black box. And then we had the cognitive revolution, which was all about the things in the black box and we developed reaction time measures. We still couldn't see it, but we got more indirect measures before um, things that were better than we had before. Once the technology gave us fMRI, we could literally see brain activity patterns. And so what we do with fMRI is we use that as a tool or a sounding board is the way I think of it. So in the case of social cognition, one of the things we discovered is that all of these social cognitive processes seem to engage the same distributed network of brain activations. So there's this network that's primarily in the neocortex, that's the more recently evolved part of the brain, including areas in the frontal lobe and parietal lobe and temporal lobe that all work in concert to allow you to infer what's happening inside somebody's mind. 
And again, the reason you need all of that processing power, right, is your hypothesis testing. So you're using your past experience, you have theories about the world, you're testing them, you're integrating a lot of statistical information. So it takes this big distributed neocortical network. So we can use that as an index and we can see if I flash a picture of a person in front of you, do you spontaneously engage this network, which is what research had always told us should happen. Not the network per se, but the, the humanizing. You should spontaneously see the person as a human. Therefore, you should engage this network. What we discovered is when we showed participants homeless people, they didn't bring this network online. And again, that was striking because everything brought this network online. Because as long as it's relevant to people, right, this network was engaged. In fact, it was so engaged, people often talked about it as the default mode network. Because if I took a participant, stuck them in the MRI and gave them no instructions, this network was engaged because when I'm mind wandering, I'm examining social relationships, I'm engaging social cognition. It's like so, the default. <laughs> exactly. Well, by default, exactly. And so this idea that you didn't engage social cognition to some people was striking because it was always on. Now, just the idea of social cognition being a default starts working against this whole concept of it being inefficient, the whole stereotyping discussion. If we're doing this by default, if by default I'm considering your mind, then it's not really that effortful. And for most people, right, thinking about what somebody else is thinking, despite all of the processing it uses, it's not hard for us to do. We're experts at it. We're doing it all the time. So I shouldn't have to rely on a stereotype. But anyway, so that's what we do. We look at in the brain at this index, and that gives us a sense as to whether um, the person engaged social cognition or not. So you show sexist men pictures of women in bikinis, you see reduction in this network. You have people buying and selling other people in the context of a labor market, you see reduction in this network. You have people looking at homeless people, you see reduction in this network. Over many labs, over many scenarios, we see what modulates activity in this brain region. Now, the other thing the brain allows you to do is that you can say, well, what else gets engaged, right? What other types of psychological processes might be substituting? And you can explore that as well. So the brain is a really useful tool to have because it's gonna allow us to generate hypotheses we wouldn't have had without looking in the brain. So this whole way of thinking of dehumanization that I've just described. That's only possible because we first saw this lack of activity in the brain. And that led us to do all of the other stuff that I've been telling you about. Um, we will link to several of your research papers in the show notes for people who want to go a little bit deeper. Um, can I wrap, Lasana, by asking you how we address some of these issues of flexible social cognition gone wrong, in other words, dehumanization. Um, there's obviously a personal psychology element to this, and there's a social context. You talk, I'm quoting you, of dehumanization as a product of intergroup cognitive bias and emotional prejudice. So on the one hand, social context, and on the other hand, personal psychology. How do we fix this? That's a great question. I think we have to re-engineer the social context because at the core, I'm also a social psychologist. And I think the biggest contribution of social psychology is the power of the context. I can create a context to get people to do anything. And, and that really made a lot of sense to me when we did 
our labor market experiments because we were able to pull off this dehumanization brain response in regular people looking at other regular people. Um, it didn't take a lot. So the this, this circumstances, the situation, the social context matters. And therefore that means that the people who engineer the social context matter for bringing about change. And so I do think this has to happen at the policy level, right? At the level where you can make decisions that literally change the social context. Um, Give me an example. For instance, if you think about the traditional uh, example people use with bias around um, the orchestra. So there's this story of an orchestra on the East Coast of the US who didn't have enough female first chairs. And what they therefore had people do was give auditions behind the curtain so you couldn't see gender. That's a structural or social context change. Instead of auditioning where I can see you perform, it now happens where I can't see you. And they saw increase in the number of female place chairs, right? So that's a structural kind of a change that leads to a benefit. I think that's the way forward, really. So you're worried about police officers shooting African-American males in the US. Maybe they shouldn't be called out for all of the variety of incidences they're called out for. Maybe we need different types of first responders that aren't armed and trained to kill. To me, obviously simple solutions to lots of the problems we currently face. I think we lack the political will to do it. Um, but the solutions to me are relatively straightforward, but they're these big structural solutions. They're not bias training every individual. That stuff helps and it matters too, but it's not going to make the change when society is what's sort of reinforcing the things the way they are. What about on the personal level? What can we do yeah. to catch ourselves? Here's where I'm pessimistic, right? I don't think about, <laughs> I don't think human beings have the ability to, I really don't. I think as human beings, we have certain motives and we're always gonna do what allows us to satisfy those motives. We have motives to belong, to be parts of groups, to feel, um, to trust other people, to make social connections, right? They're all of these to feel good about ourselves, et cetera, et cetera. So for me, we're fairly straightforward. Um, the situations we're in means that those motives are only achievable some ways, not others, for instance. And so I really do think re-engineering situations is a really big first step. And I, I worry less about what we can do as individuals. I believe being aware of these psychological processes and how they function, is a start, but when we're put in situations, we're going to respond in the appropriate manner. So I'm not one who puts a lot of emphasis on what we can do. What we can do is advocate, hold our political leaders accountable <laughs> for engineering the situations that they, and vote them out when they don't, right? We can take advantage of the democratic process. We can support corporations who are doing the right thing by their employees, right? Like we can take action in that way social justice action rather than sort of attending a workshop but um but the personal injunction to try and be less of a of an asshole is a <laughs> it's a difficult so, yeah, one yeah like you know we're human that's what we do Lasana, <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for walking us through this very complex and very important topic it's been wonderful talking to you no problem thank you That was On Opinion, the Palia podcast. Check out our show notes if you'd like to dig deeper into this episode's theme 
and join me at palia.com to explore all the world's opinions. To stay up to date with new episodes or get further insights from our guests, subscribe to On Opinion, the Palia podcast, wherever you listen and follow us on social media at Ask Palia. All our links are in the show notes. And if you enjoyed this episode, please rate us and leave us a review. Thank you for listening.